Hello and welcome to the Speaking Generally podcast, where we talk a little bit about everything. Humans may enjoy a unique place as the only reasoning creatures we are aware of in the universe, capable of looking ahead, coordinating plans, communicating complex ideas and concepts, and understanding the world around us, but we are still far from infallible in all forms of cognitive thinking. We are prey to a dizzying amount of errors and general foolishness when it comes to our attempts to rationally make decisions for our lives, be it in deciding on which gambles to make for our future career, which political candidate to vote for based on an assessment of our policy preferences, deciding how to react to gains and losses in our bank account, and decisions about what would make us happy in the future. So here with me to help lift the human race out of its blunders and booberies is the redeemer of rationality, the helper of homo sapiens, the emperor of error correction, Mr. George Taylor. Big boots to fill those. I've got the best man for the job. <laughs> I've, I've, I've got a record and told you I've not prepared for this episode. So I don't well, know why some bring into the table there apart from lazy ignorance <laughs> one of us is pulling our weight so um <laughs> you've lost a lot though so not as, <laughs> not as hard to do easier to drag around um there we have it today we are talking about uh cognitive biases and errors mistakes we make in our thinking steve what's a what's a cognitive bias a cognitive bias oh, wow you've really put me on the spot there um a cognitive bias is simply a mistake in belief or thinking um, a form of error we make where we think we are behaving rationally or making the optimum decision when we are probably making a mistake. Uh, So we tend to get certain things wrong. We try and predict what's ahead or calculate probabilities of a decision or we think a certain decision will make us better off or worse off in the future. And we tend to get a lot of those calculations wrong. So essentially it's mistakes in thinking. Um, and decision making and uh, I wanted to bring this up because I think it's a subject where I've learned a hell of a lot from and I thought I'd share it with our listeners because I think you can really improve your life in a very tangible way through learning about cognitive biases it's a very hard-nosed practical way to actually make better decisions and learn the common pitfalls that people fall into so it's uh, I mean you're definitely a lot a lot more well-versed on this topic than I am. I've done some kind of introductory reading, some some of the books we've talked about when we've recommended things before, like Thinking Fast and Slow being the kind of main touchstone for this in my eyes, I guess, and things like super forecasting. But f- before having even dipped my toe in the water, I was a bit sceptical is definitely the wrong word, but kind of pigeonholed this stuff for economists or uh, you know, like anthropologists or people working in slightly, you know, it, oh, it's just an academic issue. It doesn't apply to my day to day. And then reading those texts and realizing how applicable, not all the time, but a lot of the time these things are, especially if we are in decision making positions, it, it, well, I mean, everyone is day to day, right? They, re- they really do open up at least an awareness for the process you've made to get to the decision you've made. They help you reflect if nothing else. And I think I found that super useful, but you're going to have, I'm sure a lot more applicable examples from the work you guys do and stuff like that. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's the fact that we go about our daily lives. We are, we are making little and big decisions all the time. And we tend to just sort of 
make whatever decision on gut instinct or it feels right or this, you know, you know, we think we're doing, we think we're being very rational about it, but oftentimes we are just going on purely emotive, purely feeling type responses. And that might be appropriate for some decisions where you're literally your emotional feedback is telling you, Hey, this is a really bad situation and it's giving me anxiety, but sometimes you're just not sure or, you're sure for the wrong reasons. And so it, it's useful to be aware of the kind of things, you know, the most obvious one is say voting for someone, right? We, we, we tend to retrospectively think that we do something like voting for very, very rational, hard nosed reasons. And lots of research shows there's all kinds of persuasive tricks that work on us or ways a candidate is presented or the ways their policies are presented that affect, the way we see that entire candidate, uh, their behaviour. I think just quickly, I think it's it's interesting that you say that, like you speak speaking generally as the podcast title goes, but saying that kind of everyone thinks about their voting preference like that. I don't know if that's true. Lots of people go, oh, I just like the look of it. You know that but that definitely that, exists. But uh, perhaps, but I and think that's like a kind of willful admission of cognitive bias. <laughs> well, lots of lots of people would be. Uh, very ashamed to say that's why they voted for someone and they they retrospectively might come up with reasons why maybe i don't know i feel like i've seen plenty of like talking heads on the street where the bbc stick a microphone uh why do you vote for him (laughs) oh he just looks like a nice man you know that's yeah that's all right that is true that does happen on on those vox pops um (laughs) but um but yeah many many decisions we are inclined to look back and find we think we had good reasons to do them and um yeah, I think it's interesting to look at the mistakes we make. So there's um, bef- like, well, I don't know, before we get into more depth, maybe from my understanding of reading these things, reading about these things and then coming from a, I guess, a behavioral economics background, there's some, what, like assumptions that have to be made with these, like assuming that everyone's acting rationally, right? Or like that the it's like a, a rational market and those kinds of things. Don't they have to be assumed before you can analyze these decisions? Um, well, yeah, well, he, here's the, the basic background is that this, um, you know, much of this, these studies come from obviously the history of psychology, but something more recent, which is what they call behaviorism or behavioral economics. And that was very much a, a movement that was, you know, the classic economic assumptions were often that people act in a very rational, clear-headed, utility-maximizing way when you make a decision about how much money to spend or save, when you make decisions about what to buy in your shopping basket, or when you make decisions about your future. The, the classic economist assumption was that, you know, homo economicus, like man, you know, the rational man sort of thing. And you know, the behavioral movement was was a bunch of psychologists who were heavily involved in looking at economic decisions. Um, people like Richard Thaler, who won a Nobel Prize recently. People like Daniel Kahneman, who, who wrote the extremely popular book, Thinking Fast and Slow, an academic, Israeli academic, and he won a Nobel Prize with Amos Tversky. And they, they basically blew, they basically blew up the whole field in a certain way where they, they or at least they muddied the waters in, in in a really fascinating way where they showed um there's actually two brains going on often at one time there's your kind of system one which is what's assumed the very rational part of you but sorry the system one is a very emotional part of you and the system two maybe later is where 
if you if you can overcome system one, you can be more rational about these things. But basically, a lot of us just act on system one, which is your emotional limbic system, you know, reflex response on things. And basically, it shows we do irrational things all the time and we don't know it. And so, yeah, they, they basically showed there's a lots of biases we're prey to. Uh, which and was their initial intention to apply when we say behavioral economics that's specifically talking about economics in a financial sense it's not like a reappropriation of the term to mean you know a way of measuring behavior it's specifically about making financial decisions um it's strange they you know the economics in it kind of makes it sound more limited than it is but the economics tends to just apply to the science of decision making okay uh, can be financial, but I do a lot of studies on satisfaction and happiness. I, I guess economics concerns itself with people's utility preferences and how yeah. people seek to maximize utility. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating field and one where, yeah, I, I continue to learn from revising my biases. So let's jump in straight to one now. Well, um, are, you, are you optimistic that people then can overcome these if they're so ingrained in our subconscious? Is it with practice possible to overcome these if at the sort of average stage we're not even aware we're making them? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think you can mitigate and I mean, you are always falling prey to some sort of bias, but I think you can massively improve and have an edge. And, you know, for example, some of the best investors are the people who are able to combat some of the, you know, some of the most obvious pitfalls and biases when it comes to managing risk, uh, which we'll go into. But um, yeah, no, it's weird. Like Daniel Kahneman, who was one of the pioneers of this, is something of a pessimist in terms of just his view of human nature. But, you know, ironically, a lot of his studies have been used to sort of improve lots of things at the margins. But I think I think it's one of those that that's the point. I think lots of this is often improvement. Even if you can get 20% improvement in these areas, you can massively give yourself an edge that other people don't have. Um, you know, on the, on the pessimistic side, if you only had 10 to 20% improvement, you'll be well on your way. Um, yeah. and I've certainly, you know, just anecdotally noticed it myself when I fall prey to these things. So, uh, so yes, meaty but useful stuff, listeners. Um, so yeah, I'll give you one. Uh, this is, this will be the most, you know, obvious place to start. But I think it is an interesting one just because we uh, have talked about these are kind of linked ones, but we've talked about status quo bias before. Um, the idea of preferring things as they are now and assuming that the way certain things are now are the way they should be. Um, so for example, one we talked about was in our travel episode. We talked about the fact that, you know, you have to overcome a certain status quo bias to get yourself to go to seek out new places or to, you know, try a different living situation that you haven't tried before. We, we tend to have a weird, we, we tend to basically have, it's the most obvious place to start, but we tend to have a bias for basically whatever's happening now. We just think, well, I was born in this place and this is the kind of situation I grew up with. So this must be the optimum one I should choose. Um, 
And uh, that also links to this other effect, which is known as loss aversion, which is probably one of the most powerful concepts I've ever come across in terms of learning my own behavior. So, so the status quo bias, if you park that to the side, but equally, we have this idea that losing something is way, way more painful than potentially gaining a lot. So we have a kind of real, you know, what, what they did, they did a lot of studies on people where they showed that if they had the option of, you know, losing a relatively smaller amount of money or potentially gaining a lot, and you could make the potential gain very high, people focus very intently on what they could possibly lose. And, you know, that can be a very, very bad strategy because if you, if you frame everything in terms of potential loss, that's, that's fine if the loss is big, but if the loss is small, you really, really want to take those gambles because you could pay off massively, right? If something could pay off a hundred times return, but you might lose, I don't know, uh, you might lose a quarter of what you invested. That's, that's enormous, enormous uh, potential gain. And you should probably take that bet, but people tend to excessively worry about what they'll lose. And, and one place I noticed this anecdotally in my work is definitely relationships where people tend to, they might have a relationship that gives them a lot of dissatisfaction or a situation that is very unpleasant. And they think, yeah, but if I'm not with this person, I'll be alone or single again. And will I meet someone else? And even if this situation isn't very disagreeable now, they have this sort of inbuilt status quo bias where this is the relationship or the situation I'm in now. So maybe it's, it's a big risk to leave it, but really it's not a big risk. If you're not happy, it's not a particularly big risk, right? Sure, yeah. People tend to magnify it in their mind, not seeing the potential massive gain of being in a much more uh, relationship that doesn't have loads of arguments. And they'll have weeks and months and years of not having to deal with someone who might cheat on them or be jealous or whatever but they tend to frame it as, well, the loss will hurt. Yeah, there's probably, I, th- I think the thing with a lot of these things, why I asked that question slightly earlier about whether it's specifically about like the behavior within financial markets versus your life day to day, it's a lot easier. And I think I found it easier to understand these biases reading the examples in the book because they are normally like, decisions between would you rather lose 10 cents or gain two pounds right you can kind of work the numbers out and it's clear numbers and you can kind of understand the amounts but the psychology of someone who's dealing with should i leave a partner and take that gamble there is a lot more at play it's not just that bias that i guess influences that right there's there's plenty usually there's plenty of other factors like oh my social circle would change or why well, might affect my career or, or those there's other things but it's mm-hmm. when all these biases like play into each other at once it it completely removes the ability to make a clear and rational decision but like emotional uh circumstances are often not dealt with rationally right so it's it's hard often to apply the kind of clinical rational approach to an emotional issue. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think the relationship one obviously is one where there's many, many different factors at play. And so it's quite hard to like isolate what the Mm. fear is when someone leaves someone. But I think 
for example, in in money decisions, it's a lot clearer because you can actually see if what kind of bets and gambles people are willing to make with their money, right? Which specifically tells you what's on the line and what they could lose. And I think, yeah, like investing, for example, right? I know loads of people who won't start investing because they think, well, if I invest, right, I can lose money. And that's how they frame the entire Mm -hmm. thing of, well, if I put some of my savings into investment, I can lose, right? But you go, yeah, but if you actually worked out, you know, a fund that had a fairly consistent return, just like, you know, like everyone advises an index fund that just has market returns. Well, the market over a hundred years is shown to average a 7% a year return or whatever it is. So basically if you, you have a very good chance of being up on the deal over a period of longer time, but your frame is just, well, if there's a market crash, I've lost money, haven't I? But you, you just, you, you look for the, the very, very worst possible yeah. and don't see the gain you could have. And I think that's where, and I, I do think, you know, people do this in taking very small chances, even in like, I don't know, even in putting something out there, right? It's like, there might be very little outside. If you like wrote a terrible article or something, there's very little downside but maybe there's a lot of upside if you, mm. you know, do well or get noticed or do something good. But if you're kind of constantly loss averse and focused on what you could lose, you you just end up in inertia a lot of the time, I think. And uh, yeah, you, so, so there's this concept in investment that's very crucial, which is asymmetric risk. So the best investors are always looking for where the loss is low and the potential gain is very high. Uh, which is why you generally don't want to invest in stocks that are like, I don't know, Tesla right now is extremely highly priced, right? And it it could fall massively and the gain is very unknown. So that's probably like at the moment a very, that's a highly, highly risky strategy to go and pour a lot of money into Tesla. But, you know, the Warren Buffett thing is like what stocks are really, really fairly priced right now that are great companies that are overlooked, that are, it may be underpriced. And so he's always like looking for, well, the potential loss there, even if things get worse, is not going to be so bad because it's already fairly cheap. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that concept in you, you can start to see that play in many, many different areas where, you know, I think, I think, yeah, like I say, like putting out content, starting businesses, things like that. You can look for things where you say, how big is the loss actually here? What is the fear the fear I have right now, how much is it, is it substantiated and how much is it just loss aversion where, you know, or if you're buying something, right, it's like, yeah, maybe it will cost you 20 bucks to try that thing. But if it's great, maybe the upside is huge. The yeah. upside, you know, the upside could be massive, but you're focusing on, well, I'm spending 20, 20 quid on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's a very useful one to know. Um uh, another one here is a very common one and very popular one that people will know uh, is confirmation bias. Yeah, that's, um, I don't know, more and more apparent with, I guess, like the 
increasing like political commentary as much as anything else at the moment. I feel like there's increased political commentary in the last few years and across social media and stuff like that. And the idea of an echo chamber and those sort of um, repetitive voices on social media definitely feeds into that for sure. Yeah. And I think um, it's, it's talked about a lot, right. But I think it is one that is so, yeah, it's it kind of explains a hell of a lot about the weird situation we're in. Even if you just look at politics, right, it's very odd that people skew so consistently with their tribe on so many issues and, you know, that they vote the same every time. You could say, well, it's just that that's the party that's aligned with my policy preferences. But, you know, the parties change, right, and the candidates change and, you know... It, or, or you have a belief about, I don't know, um, you could have any belief about about the way people are, or you have a, uh, a specific religious belief, or a belief about the universe, or a belief about, yeah, what, um, yeah so, something you just believe to be, what, what, what phone, what, you know, tech product you think is the best, right? And you just start looking for, well, I own that tech product and I'm going to look at all the reasons that it's definitely the best to have like an Apple iPhone and never question that. And well, A, there's probably some kind of evolutionary reason where we look for things to confirm patterns and we we are like pattern-seeking creatures where it was very useful in a, you know, in, in our natural environment to look for patterns and confirm them and find evidence for that. But you can start looking for patterns that don't exist or you start looking at, superficial things and using them as further confirming evidence of your view right well what i, f- I find that this like confirmation bias is not particularly pernicious or you're you're most at risk to succumbing to it when you're not um i don't know if it's worse when you're you've either got a hundred percent conviction in a view and then you use things to reinforce it or if you're not quite sure about something and then you but you're leaning one way and you don't do the proper investigation because you let confirmation bias sway you. Like, oh, I think, no, I think I should probably go there on, you know, on holiday or whatever. And you see something and it tips you over the edge as much as also saying all, I don't know, all dog owners are evil. And then you see someone's dog bite someone and then that, yeah, I knew it. I told you, right. It's like, I don't know where it's more dangerous because someone with such a dogmatic position it's not just the bias that's shaping that dogmatism, but it's is that so a pun? I, is that sorry, a pun dogmatic? It, it certainly can be. It certainly can be. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I because you can you can be aware that you're susceptible to it almost. Like you have this sort of oh, I think that might be the way something is, or yeah, I like that person. I think they're a bit like that, and then you see some things, and it it confirms things for you. But it's not really a fair. You're not really giving them a fair crack of the whip, maybe. Whereas going, uh, I staunchly believe that all X are X, then, yeah, I, d- I don't know where, where would you say it's a more dangerous one? More, more dangerous, as in, just clarify what compared to what? Like, having a fairly like rigid dogmatic belief, is confirmation bias a problem for those people because they've already got such a matter-of-fact opinion on something? Or is confirmation bias a more dangerous like, trap to fall into when you're sort of on the edge of something? You're not quite sure and you let that bad bias determine the way you go. Oh, I see. Yeah, I think it's probably... 
I mean, pro- I mean, I mean, both are pretty bad. I think, I think it's that you stop revising whatever the whatever the opinion is, whatever you get swayed by initially. I think that's fine, but you you sort of have to keep updating and revising it because you're going to come to an opinion very quickly, right? It's like even we said about when you decide on a you decide something about a city, right? It's like I hate Rome. It's dirty yeah. and ugly and whatever. But um, I mean, I don't hate Rome, but I haven't been. But you know, you, you'll have that, and then you'll start just looking for all these reasons. When you well, yeah, confirmation bias for that would be getting off the bus when you land in Rome and seeing some I don't know rubbish on the floor. And go, I told you, it's horrible. And then right. behind you, you've got like the Colosseum or something. You know, something incredible. And you're not looking at that. You're looking for the things that re- reaffirm your position. Yeah, and I definitely. I mean, we have a friend who will remain nameless, but he's got a very negative view on London. And seems to uh, seems to use any opportunity to sort of point out again and again how how much of a sort of dumpster fire he thinks London is, and it's uh, it can just make you very. It's fine to have a strong view, but I think it ends up that you you lose sight of any objectivity, right? And you start discon- discounting obvious counter things to your opinion, like you're like, oh, but London has all this amazing art and it has all this history and you know, these great restaurants or whatever. And it's like, they'll find reasons to either not accept or shrug off some very obvious counterpoints. And they, they can then make a claim, well, yeah, on balance, but on balance, here's the reasons I think it's bad. But people don't tend to do that. They tend to lean harder into their view and find a way to, you know, go. It's like if someone's debating, I don't know, capitalism v communism or something right you can you can definitely make your case with evidence and say which one you think is preferable but you want to at least look at the other side and be able to a understand why people believe that position and b you need to not look at your version in a very rose-tinted idealistic light like you could be very alert to say the flaws of capitalism and still you could be like, well, I'm a capitalist on balance, but you could still, what people do is they, they look at like the ideal version of what they believe and then compare it to like the other person's, um, the most cynical view of the other person say, it'll be like my candidate in their ideal, what they aspire to be is blah, blah, blah. But your candidate is a piece of crap because blah, blah, blah. But they, they don't look at, but, you know, your can- the candidate you like probably tells lies as well or exaggerates or has a... Yeah, they're know. not comparing equal characteristics, right? Yeah, and so I think you just have to be very alive to the critique of whatever it is you think. And I find it's more fun that way. I think people don't... I think there's a laziness and a kind of... It's, it's quite... In- it, it can feel intellectually demanding, can't it, to constantly have your opinions under question in a certain way. And so I think... I think confirmation bias helps you just know where you stand, helps you know your tribe, helps you know what, you know, like certainties in your life people gravitate to. But I think then it just leads to a kind of stagnation where your opinion is not, is not shifting with facts and you end up kind of eventually you can end up very far from the truth if you dig in too hard, mm. is my view. It doesn't even matter to me if you go back and forth several times. Like I find some of the most intellectually stimulating and 
brilliant people I know and follow have gone back on several views. They go between different polar opposites, but there's an honesty about it. And you feel that once they, once they actually get clarity and have decided they have a, such a more robust version of their view that has a lot more nuance and sophistication because they've truly considered the other opinion and what its merits are. You know, if you have some opinion on nationalized healthcare versus privatized, it's like someone who has considered that from every angle and has an opinion has so much more than someone who would just go, Oh, um, I don't know. Public medicine is all terrible and it's socialism or something. Right. It's like, that person doesn't have a very considered reasoning as to what they're against with. The confirmation bias in action would be like, I love private healthcare. It's the best option for everyone. And then I go and have an operation privately and it's great. And I come out and go see like, that would be it. Right. It's it's not so much just having the, it's not having the opinion and not really considering the other is it's, it's following up with an action, but an action that is very narrow in its scope. So it reinforces what you then, continue to believe yeah or just even if you have a belief say you just had a a rather banal belief like you know all dogs don't need to be on leashes or whatever and you you know you go and pet some cute dogs you're like look see dogs are lovely and it's like you haven't been bitten by a dog yeah you know you you haven't considered things from that perspective of someone who's been bitten by someone else's dog and uh yeah i've i've definitely seen people do that many many times in my life where yeah, they, they look at a few instances and then just add up the lines and make a graph from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you do you find yourself, like, personally revising many deep-held opinions? Do you, do you have ones where you think you're more prey to it or... Well, you do, you think all these, do you think all these biases of what we're talking about here is really rooted in, like, deep-seated, deep-held opinions? I, my sort of takeaway from it a lot more is is that they're more applicable generally with like the smaller, but lots of accumulating decisions, you know? So it's like, I, I, it would be more for me, it would be more, Oh, why did I choose to, um, I don't know. Why did I choose? Yeah. Why did I choose to buy that? Oh God, maybe I was susceptible to this rather than my lifelong belief that, you know, I don't know, my political opinion or something like that. I don't, for right. me they're more applicable on these kind of lots of small use examples and that's where i've had more measure on it for myself it's like oh i realized i was susceptible to doing that i that was loss aversion at work i'd be much better rolling the dice there i should do it but i i wouldn't say oh it was loss aversion that made me or stopped me start a company i think that's i think there's usually more moving parts at work there i think the things i've taken from reading the books that cover these things are those oh God, I was just completely on autopilot when I did that. You know, right. uh, I don't think all the kind of autopilot responses are the things that shape people's big, like broad brushstrokes life decisions. Right. I think it's more like the accruing of the smaller ones. Uh, that might be true. It might, well, it definitely helps you to more think about them at the margins. I'm sure with the big ones, like I'm sure with like politics and stuff, it plays, plays a fairly large role. I'm trying to think if him, my, like things like career or or finances and things they've played a role i guess the confirmation one i think the confirmation one for me is more see there is a generalistic element for me where i sometimes personally i'll have a tendency to look for confirmation that 
the decisions I make are have made and I'm making are correct. And yes, I, oh, look, look, I'm doing the right things because this happened. And, and it's like, well, I don't know what, what else would have happened if I made a different decision. And I don't, you know, I'm using the good to say, mm-hmm. well, see, that was a good, that was a good choice. Cause this, this came of it, but you know, it's, it's like, but maybe there's some bad ramifications of certain things. Yeah. Well, I think everyone's definitely guilty of like, I don't know if you read the newspaper that's politically aligned to what you think, that kind of stuff. But it's also very easy to, you know, take on a bit from the other side of the spectrum and that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, the internet makes that, it makes it easy to do. It's not always easily done, but you have the opportunity to be able to address those biases by, you know, oh, I can get the Guardian, I can get the Times, I can get all the newspapers of the different spectrums. The problem is that it is very easy to slip into old habits, right? And then that is when you go, oh yeah, I thought that about that politician. And yeah, I was right because look what the newspaper says. Um, yeah, yeah. confirmation and- bias can definitely come around there but I do think there's also there's probably an element of like it's not just a bias it, like you may have an opinion and it the opinion like there are times when the opinion's like more objectively correct right so it's you know it, it wouldn't just be like a bias at work it would be like oh actually like you know the general consensus is that that's the right thing to do yeah yeah, I think I think sometimes it is. I think it's more when there's a lots of different counteracting po- like you might choose let's stick with politics for a moment. You might choose a candidate and they'll win and for the next 4 years, you know, everything that goes right in the economy you're attributing to confirm- mm. confirming, but then a few things go wrong and a, oh there's a lot more unemployment, but you kind of you kind of just quietly ignore them or try to brush them off as yeah. other reasons. You you start just looking for fishing out the, the things that vindicate you. And, and I, I just think that's the thing where you can be, I, I think it's basically, to me, it's an argument to just be a lot less dogmatic. Yeah. I think be dogmatic on the things, if you're really, there's something you've gone earned level of certainty about, that's fine. But I think those things in general in life should be very, very narrow subset of your opinions. And I think on lots of things, you should be very capable far, far more capable than most people are currently of being persuadable and challenging them because you realize there's basically not a lot of value to just to just holding on. Like people really protect their beliefs, like they're so precious and this is my opinion and oh no, if I change it, what does that mean? But if you're changeable, then you've kind of got a superpower that other people don't have where you can just revise on evidence and you can always revise back later. But, you know, it's like to come into a conversation with friends and say, I think I've changed my mind on that. Like, even if you've changed your mind on a film or changed your mind on, yeah, I, I don't know, just just uh, you had a strong view on a particular debate you were having. And then you just kind of come and say, oh, actually, I think there's merit to that than I thought. It's It's a really, really liberating, powerful thing you can do. And I think it's more fun arguably um, yeah I, I i agree i just wonder how much of that is down to cognitive bias rather than just being able to change your opinion i don't think they're necessarily part of the same thing but again again that's probably because i see these things as like like micro decision issues rather than oh yeah i i will <laughs> 
I love the film The Deer Hunter if I rewatch it and I go, actually, I thought that was rubbish. It's not because I had a cognitive bias. I don't think it's just that I, I may have consumed different, um, I don't know, opinions in the interim and have been able to reformulate an argument. For me, it would be like, it's the knee-jerk biases are the ones that I find really meaningful. Like a sort of, oh, I hate Paris sort of thing. And then- yeah, not even that. It would be more... You know, uh, the marshmallow test, right? Like, do you eat one now or do you save it and get two a bit later? That kind of thing. Like, understanding how you respond to those and then finding applicable ways in your day-to-day life, I think, is where I've found value in in these books. Or even the the other one, alongside the ones we mentioned a bit earlier, like Nudge, I think, is Mm -hmm. that I found very interesting, if anything, or if nothing else, because it was so readily taken up by, like, the British government took that up, right? Like, they set up that policy unit. So the Nudge thing is like just, like you said, like just making little changes at the margins to get small percentage differences, but on a huge scale, it has massive impact. So getting people to, I don't know, you know, the famous don't mess with Texas litter anti-littering campaign kind of brought littering down by just incredible numbers by making a few small signs, you know, that, that sort of stuff. So the impact you can have with these really small decisions, um, I've, I've found that particularly interesting and that's not really about great opinions that people hold. It's just shifting them slightly in a direction that has a greater utility, I guess a greater utility for a greater number of people. Yeah. Well, and that was showing how you can, yeah, that was showing how you can just nudge people's very initial instincts on little behavioral things, mm. right? Like I said, you know, the classic one is like how you arrange things in a supermarket has a very, very big effect on if people are going to buy more fruit or more snacks. You know, it's like what's at the counter when you go to buy stuff makes a huge difference and that can affect how healthy someone is. Or um, the other nudge one that was good, well, the, the nudge one points to one uh, one thing we can briefly touch on, which is the default effect, which is just that people will often choose whatever the default option is on any when they're presented. Like opt in versus opt out, right? Yeah, if you're if you're automatically opted into an insurance scheme and you have a little checkbox that says, "Do you want to opt out of this?" you'll be more likely to just stick with whatever the default is. Even they said much more people choose to be organ donors if they're automatically registered as an organ donor and have the choice not to be one. So they have to actively say, I don't want to be an organ donor. And most people end up just deferring to the status quo again, right? But um, but yeah, I, I think those are really um, interesting. I wonder if you can set, well, you can set lots of little nudges up for yourself, right? Even just to like, you know, if you want to help yourself wake up in the morning and you yeah, definitely. present yourself with things that are enticing that make you want to wake up. Even I do stuff like if I need to go for a run in the morning, I'll have my like, running shoes next to my bed or something. You know, it's just that bit easier to put them on than it is to walk downstairs, find them in the cupboard and find an excuse to not do it. It's very, they're certainly the things that I've found helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like, you know, if you, whatever, having some favourite you know, it can be like the smell of coffee can make people want to get out of bed more because they actually like want to then go and have coffee and stuff. Um, yeah. So there's lots of little things you can use to sort of, they call it choice architecture, but the way you frame choices, uh, has a huge effect on you. I think it's also like, 
you know, one thing is uh, just choice overload. It's like if you have too many choices, people tend to um, get freaked out and have inertia. Surely tin- like Tinder is a great example of that, right? Especially in the world that you're working in. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I guess that makes people, what does that make people have? A kind of... Um, you, know, oh, like, you become sort of like a waitex hold, right? Yeah, either paralyzed by choice or just apathetic to the whole situation. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it's like if you suddenly had, if you were given, it's like if you were given a hundred books to read, right? It's like way more overwhelming than maybe like, do you want to read this or this? You you you'd find it easier than if if you get the stack of a hundred books, like which one you're going to read next? Is suddenly a whole. Harder I have discipline. created that dilemma for myself. My to right. my to read pile is about a hundred books, and I spend about an hour each time. Like, oh, what should, I, what should I do? Yeah, if if there were just two options, you'd get things done, wouldn't you? A lot more efficiently. Yeah, um, I love it. I do love it. I I do love it, but um, yeah, definitely like making the choice easy for yourself. I definitely find sometimes just narrowing my options makes things way easier. It's like if you have a hundred options of things to do in a day. But if you just say you can either study this language you're learning or you can read this book on philosophy, it's like, oh, which one do I want to do? I'll do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's easier. So that's a little interesting one. Um, this one, George, is a, is a little interesting one. That um, This bias I want to talk about now. It's called the peak end rule. And it's one that I've found has affected how I think about setting up experiences for maximizing happiness uh is that so, how you go around day-to-day thinking <laughs> what a what a romantic man i am <laughs> um but this one actually uh i've noticed its effects and i think this was something that dan Ariely talks about who is a uh, another israeli uh behavioral guy and he wrote a book called predictably irrational and uh yeah, basically, the idea of the peak end rule is that if you're thinking about, for for some reason, we have a very odd uh, quirk, which is that we tend to weight the end of an experience very heavily. So if things end, particularly at a crescendo, or basically how things end is really important to your overall view of the entire experience. And, you know, if a movie has a terrible ending, you can leave much more negative about it than if it had a really if it was an okay movie and had a really exciting ending um and it can happen with like holidays if if your holiday went really well or relatively well and there was a massive fight at the end of it and everyone got in an argument and ended up unhappy you would look back you would taint the whole view of the holiday as as it didn't go well and you would even your memory would remember it as kind of a a bit of a miserable experience. Even uh, if Steve, three of our, uh, myself and two of our friends went away to Spain for five days. Four of the days were absolutely cracking. Last day, someone who will remain nameless gave everyone terrible food poisoning. <laughs> of nothing else but how awful the trip was. Now, in way, it was four way, days. By the way, listeners, I, that, he's not referring like to me there. I wasn't on the trip. I'm referring to myself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's the peak end rule at work because it was, it was great for those first four days. We've talked of nothing else other than the, the bad ending. It was probably disproportionately bad. But so you, Do you ascribe yourself as giving everyone the food poisoning? Yeah, I'm guilty as sin. 
I thought it was sort of a joint effort. I thought it was. Oh, I think I'm, I'm banged to rights now. Two years back, I'm banged to rights. Oh, I thought everyone sort of shouldered. The I do. I think I disagree with it with film. I don't think that that's a disproportionate um, reaction. You wouldn't go, oh, that fi-, you know, I had a great time for eighty minutes, but they absolutely flubbed the ending. So therefore, you know, I should think of it as eighty percent good. You, it's like uh, because there's there's an onus on tying all the moving parts together and you know bringing an arc and a narrative together. So I don't, I don't necessarily. I think what well, I certainly look for like a holistic thing. Um, yeah, I, again, I don't know if that's one of those things where I like to think I do, but maybe I judge on the ending. I, I definitely complain a lot about films that I always say, ah, oh, the third act really blew it. Oh, no, like, but I'm, I'm saying that's a valid criticism. I think that's a valid criticism. Right, yeah. I don't think that's a bias because I think there are requirements of a film to be, if it starts in a certain way, it needs to deliver on it. And if it doesn't, then it would be very hard to say, oh, it was pretty good, but the ending absolutely ripped the guts out of it. You can't, it, it's too limiting in my eyes. I don't think that's a bias. Do you think there are film applications of film? Do you think a film, say, like The Usual Suspects, though, gets higher rated because it has that great ending that's sort of surprising? But the ending is payoff to things that have been laid before. So it, it's not just, oh, that ending's just stuck on the end and it's a really good scene. It, it obviously relates <laughs> to things that have happened before. Yeah, yeah. That's so true. it's more you're seeing how they've taken you on a journey and kept things away from you. There's lots at work there. Yeah, yeah. And movies might not be the best example. but um, No, I feel like the holiday thing is spot on. It, it definitely colours the whole experience. Yeah, I think even... Um, you know, they say relationships as well, like a divorce, say, can can make you forget. You know, if you if you actually looked at an entire marriage in the sum total, you might have had a lot of happy, loving years out of it. But look back at the whole experience as regretful because it ended really badly or acrimoniously. We live, in, we live in the present, though, don't we? So you're only, yeah. you're only kind of as... You're, you're sort of the sum of everything that's gone before you, but you are as you are in that moment. I mean, yeah. It's hard to go, well, eight years ago things were brilliant well the marriage one is complicated because say something that ends the relationship could could be something that colors your entire view of it right if you were being lied to for like eight years mm. it could taint all the old memories you know oh they weren't really happy because that person was cheating on me for eight years but like like you say the way it's applicable to things like a supermarket or like shop architecture or something oh i went around that shop it was you know I don't know, like you go around the Ikea, you get lost, but then in the, at the very end, you get a nice big bowl of meatballs. You suddenly think how great the experience was. And it's like, it's more about building these quite in, inconsequential experiences, but building them up. It's yeah. more like a tool that, yeah, that, yeah, architects, choice architects, whoever could utilize rather, I see them more in that sense, like those short, short term experiences rather than more like grandiose issues. I, I kind of do, I, I, ever since I found out about it and noticed it in certain things though, I do obsess with like the holiday thing of making the last day really good. I'm always like, no fights on the last day. Let's like have a really nice one. Let's like have that a- overvaluing memory. Like um, you're looking to think, I, when I look back, I want to look back and think this is great. Yeah, but afterwards, that's that's what you, all you have, isn't it? Yeah, you've got experience. That's what you've got. That, that, and that's a thing that Daniel Kahneman talks about actually in in thinking fast and slow. Is we actually are a composite of two selves. We have our experiencing self and our remembering self, and uh, 
the remembering self has a different view of what happened than the person who was experiencing it. You, you can experience it, like I say, with a lot of pleasure, but you know, the end might change your entire memory of it looking back. So it's, um, it's a strange thing. And he almost, he almost defers on the side of like, he doesn't give his, uh, again, he's quite a pessimist and stuff, but he, he doesn't give his remembering self much credit at all. Like he more focuses on his experiencing self and just thinks his remembering self is really flawed. So like he says, lots of people, we actually frame many of the decisions we make are actually motivated by avoiding future regret. And we talked about this on a previous episode, George, didn't we? But he says that I think in his view, that's kind of a mistake in that he thinks people obsess too much about, Oh, I'll, I'll do that thing. Cause I don't want to feel regret later. Or I'll, I'll do that. Even if it's not very pleasurable, cause I want to look back on it. And I think he almost has the opposite view where he sort of rather prioritize enjoying the experience now. Mm. Doesn't really care if the remembering self is like, Oh, I should have gone to Iceland. I think he sort of doesn't doesn't hold that in a lot of esteem, but yeah, I, I don't know. We do, we already kind of thrashed that one out on a previous episode about yeah. regret, but it's an interesting philosophical conundrum of how you should uh, make the choices. Um, but definitely, don't end things badly because you'll remember. <laughs> try try and you know even the relationship. Try and leave it with a little bit of. One that sprung to my mind, I'm not sure what's on your list, but one that really resonated me, with me when I was reading about it. I don't know if it's, I suppose it is a cognitive bias. It's, um, it's like the anchoring effect mm, and just yeah. how, <laughs> I don't know how accurate this is, but essentially if you tell someone a number and then ask them to pick something from a range, the, the number they pick later on will have been affected by the number they see they'd seen previously right so like yeah i could say to you that uh you know i don't know 16 and then a bit later ask you how much you think i weigh you're going to be more swayed to thinking i'm nearer 16 stone than i would have been if you hadn't heard that number originally i'm missing out some of the specifics but yeah. just like being able to frame frame the ways that people come to a, an answer by just putting other information in front of them earlier on is is shocking actually yeah and, and you know in negotiation right it's like if you throw out a number it's just mm. going to color the whole negotiation yeah, yeah like, like haggling or something yeah if it's even like oh what salary do you think you know will i if i if i throw out well like oh 40 grand and that we'll we'll frame the whole debate around yeah. like 40k being the salary even yeah. though maybe if it had started at 70k it'd be a complete ended up with that yeah discussion so it's like yeah numbers can have a very strong uh effect on where you think even if yeah, if you said the whatever, yeah, yeah, the weight one's a good example. But it's, um, but yeah, like framing anything, right? Like you can anchor certain, yeah, yeah, just all those things. Like you can present someone with an, a binary of two options, right? And that's how they then see the decision is like. Yeah. Um, you could frame a political candidate as if you're choosing them, you're choosing insecurity yeah yeah, yeah. him it's safety and optimism or whatever and and it's like just fear and uh hope or whatever so people like we tend to like these very like simple simple stories and heuristics but the number i, I think in the example that he talks about in the book with the with the anchoring of numbers it can even be utterly irrelevant right like you give 
you're asking me how much I weigh and you get someone to read through a list of just, I don't know, the, I don't know, the largest populations in cities or something where they're reading really high numbers and you ask someone else to read like smallest, I don't know, weights an animal can be and then you go, oh, how much does that guy weigh? The first person's going to be skewed to giving you a higher answer. Right, yeah. And yeah. it's like they're not, you're not talking about weight, you're not talking about anything related to the final question but just having those numbers in the frame i guess we're not great with numbers naturally right i i'm certainly not i've had to work to be able to be any better with numbers not many people are naturally great with them yeah i imagine that affects that bias yeah we are very bad with um with numbers and with probabilities um Mm. just anything that is trying to actually assess the chances of something happening um and we often don't make the guesses on well, this is a very in, one of the most useful correctives I've found on the the numbers thing is uh, is this concept in in the book a book that changed my life literally was the book Super Forecasting um, by Philip Tetlock, who's like a pioneer of uh, looking at the way we deal with numbers and probability. But the uh, the idea of what they call Bayesian updating, which is like your you know looking at your position on something and saying, okay, so if you think like it's X percent likely that this candidate's going to win the election and then there's a big scandal involving that candidate. So you said, oh, I thought there was 60% chance of him winning, but most people will go very binary and it's like, there's like 99% chance of him winning and then there's a scandal and they think, oh, he's not going to win now. And Bayesian updating just basically says, you should just revise with appropriately according to what happened. So it should just, you just get slightly lesser and you go, well, now it's uh, 55% or now it's gone from 70% to 60%. So I'm still thinking he's going to win, but this is going to, there's more of a chance now. And that seems extremely simple, but it, you know, if you look at the way people bet on things or the way people um, get, spooked by one new piece of evidence it can like the the newest thing you saw and like like anchoring right it can just completely color the entire view of like that happened now so i've completely changed my mind and all bets are off and it's like no not all bets are off you still have all those reasons you had before yeah now there's a new fact coming the issue with that is knowing it's like who's qualified to make the the reassessment like is just you know I've got a bet on this football team winning and then I found out that their best player's not playing. Am I qualified enough to go, okay, well, he's worth 10% readdressing in my gamble? Like, who... Yeah. I I I know what you're saying, but, like, how do you quantify, oh, there's been a sex scandal for a politician? How do you know... You have to do a lot of, like, checking precedent, right, before you can make that reassessment. Yeah, you, you you might need a bit of prior knowledge, but you, you know, even with the football team... There's lots of things that, like, even just making educated guesses is actually very, way more accurate. Like, if you just went, well, what's the, how much impact does the star player likely have on a team? Like, what's the sort of probability they change? And you you can kind of even just come to some rough figures, and Mm. even those would be more effective than the knee-jerk of being like, star player's injured, so... I'm off, yeah. It's rough, like, it's a... Yeah, it's like, oh, Tom Brady's not playing the Super Bowl, so the Patriots won't win. It's like, well, you know. Um, 
how much impact does he have? But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's one part we're just extremely poor at is um, just slightly revising our view based on new evidence. Um, yeah, I think that's a very interesting one. Um, the uh, other one I want to talk about is oh, which one these on talk about? Um, okay, let's talk about the halo effect, George. Hmm. Halo effect is the tendency for a person's positive or negative traits to spill over from one personality area to another in other people's perception of them. So one stereotype might just be that physically attractive people are assumed to have other good characteristics, but it can also be a sort of role model effect, right? Where someone is really, really good at sport and they're an amazing athlete and they're assumed to have you know, the thing we talked about the other day, right? Celebrities being assumed to be cogent on politics and <laughs> yeah. things like that. It might just be, oh, they're accomplished. So what they say on this really matters or, you know, they they are attractive and successful. So what they have to advise me about in my relationship must be really, must have mm. real weight. And there's a kind of... I, a, don't, I don't think that's always a bias, is it? There are, there are times when there is some significance to that even if it's inherently unrelated there will be an impact that a person could have or you know well if they're good at football it obviously doesn't mean they're going to be a great political thinker but they might be able to provide advice about their journey or something there's definitely things that can be taken I suppose particularly with the sort of celebrity route because there's so many things at work as to why we hold people in higher stead but maybe people disconnected with fame you know, oh, well, Steve's a good-looking bloke, so therefore he'll be a good babysitter. Uh, like that, right? That would... Right, yeah. There wouldn't be the same thing there, maybe. Um, but yeah, that, there is there is definitely an issue with certain characteristics bleeding into others, and also I'm assuming negative characteristics just as much, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think the inverse is true as well, where people can make, uh, yeah, take one negative thing about someone and assume everything they say is wrong. Um, but it, yeah, it's, I I notice it in, well, obviously like halo effect is employed, right. By advertisers all the time where like getting celebrities to endorse things or getting, you know, you know, athletes and competent people to say, this is great as well. You assume their opinion has weight. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I find, I find it useful to just to give myself the sobering, I like to sober myself of assuming that, yeah, just assuming that a successful person knows more than they do and that not not getting caught up in... I, I think people just get very easily caught up in idealizing. They're looking for someone who is kind of... People look for leaders, right, in life and it's just useful. So I think they just tend to look for a shining example that they can follow on everything. And I've always found that very dangerous. I've always thought, well maybe that successful person has dreadful personal relationships and their thoughts on that are not very, not worth anything. I think you have to just have a healthy level of skepticism about people talking outside their competencies. Um, you know, it's, it, or again, it's like someone might be really, really smart and have silly politics, or they might be really, really smart in some areas and have, um, you know, religious views that are kind of wacky or whatever. And, you know, it's, 
you've just kind of got to be careful of assuming that because someone's got it really, really right in one area that they can speak on other things because often they're just as confused and ignorant about many other areas. Yeah. Uh, I think people just tend to sometimes underweight their own opinion and they tend to kind of defer to a leader type uh, to give them it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another one, I think we're coming to the end of these now, or we will, to not stuff our listeners with too much. This one will resonate with you, George, when you're going to get your uh, custard buns in the morning. <laughs> Here we go. The, uh, the projection bias, which is the tendency to overestimate how much our future selves share our own current preferences, thoughts, and values, leading to suboptimal choices. Is it like I'd be filled with regret once I'm filled with custard kind of thing? Yeah, we'll basically be like, well, I'm in the shop now and I'm hungry, so I'm just going to get absolutely as much as I can, stuff myself, and you assume that your future self will be happy. The, th- the thing that our listeners don't maybe not know about me or maybe do not know about me is I love feeling really full and stuffed. So that that's blown up in your face. I don't, I'm doing him a favour. I don't understand that. <laughs> I, I think the the old fatter me used to enjoy that. Yeah. And I think now I, I start to associate that with pain, but you love to just fill a fill a right up, don't you? Yeah, I really do. <laughs> Custard all the way to the top. Gotta to say though, you you're looking like, you know, good at the moment. You've been good, haven't you? Ten days of the flu works wonders, isn't it? <laughs> he has not got COVID. 19 or whatever it's called i don't think it's so just regular good old regular <laughs> yeah good old regular flu uh yeah um uh another one here is the planning fallacy the tendency to underestimate how much a task takes to complete sorry the tendency to underestimate how long it will take to complete a task so what um what people tend to do is they look at the best case scenario mm. and assume that they will be the best case scenario <laughs> yeah They'll go like, oh, someone finished a PhD in two years once, so I could work really hard and do that. Instead of them thinking, am I the kind of person who works myself to the bone and is exceptional in that way? Or am I more like what the average PhD student is probably like and therefore will probably finish in an average amount of time? And a lot of people tend to assume for for whatever reasons that they have an exceptional ability. Yeah. Um, or they might assume, well, I can write a book in uh, three months. And, you know, it's, uh, and then it ends up being like, oh, it turned out it was about a year or two as long as other people take. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely succumbed to that, like that form of overconfidence in me, me being able to achieve on a level that is probably beyond my capacity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, occasionally you're right. Occasionally you get it right. But, but yeah, more often you have to kind of assume if you're taking on a very, very big task, you should, and I've learned this with writing particularly, you should just assume that it tends to take people this long. So assume it'll take you this long because, you know, you'll, you'll make all kinds of mistakes and stress by trying to give yourself this like superhuman uh superhuman idea of what you should achieve yeah final one george go on um oh one more worth talking about survivorship bias 
just... I definitely suffer from that. <laughs> okay, let's talk about that. How would you describe it? Well, I, I'm sort of responding to something that isn't quite the actual survivorship bias, but more just that I have a blinkered view that I would always survive, <laughs> always survive <laughs> situations. It's not quite the same thing, but no, it's more, isn't survivorship bias like seeing that what is, it's almost like the status quo bias, like you see what is the state of things now and you're putting like undue stock on people that have kind of evolutionarily made it to that point. Yeah, you're looking at, um, yeah, you're looking at examples of people who managed to succeed in a certain way, and you're you're just using them as the only example. Like the the classic one is, oh well, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college, right? So, yeah. and he founded Facebook. So if I drop out of college, it could lead to me having a billion dollars. Yeah, but you don't see the three hundred thousand people sleeping under a bridge who made the same yeah. decision, right? Or yeah. people who dropped out with the promising companies in Silicon Valley, right? And they dropped out and those companies didn't amount to much or they became... Yeah, you hear about the exceptional. Yeah, so you you tend to just look at that as the... Yeah, you tend to look at that as the default, even though it's the exception. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's an interesting one because it, it, I think that one you should... It teaches you to at least model yourself on the average person. And, you know, that sounds like a negative, but it's just probably going to steer you more right to look at, well, the people who, you know, completed college and finished their degree more often ended up earning better salaries or whatever yeah. than finishing. Yeah. And like you, it's good to kind of defer to like, you know, you might get exceptional luck on certain things. You might get exceptional bad luck as, as well, but you want to look at, well, the average gets this and that's useful, useful heuristic. Um, the uh, final one, George, is what they call declinism, um, which is just the biased belief that things are getting worse. And I think that's uh, one of the ones that Steven Pinker tries to counteract in a lot of his work, where he tries to show that on many metrics, the human race has gotten better. We're in a much less violent world now. There's much less people, much, much less people in poverty than there were even 100 years ago. There's many, many metrics where we are progressing in a very optimistic way, but the default from our own biases, the way we've the news is framed, the way we tend to focus on the suffering is that there's lots of people who assume, well, things are, oh, things are really, really bad now. We're in a really terrible time, or there's a there's just an idea that we are living in one of the most difficult, et cetera, et cetera, and. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously on an absolute scale, I'm sure lots of people are not going to say 2020 is worse than 1520. <laughs> um, uh, but well, this is, is this is something I, f- I find this a very interesting topic, but to the point where I think we could do an episode's worth of conversation on it. So I'm holding back my views because I feel like we could actually really, really kick this kick this puppy up up in the air. Okay, well let's let's leave that as an open a little treasure chest to open up later. Then. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I find that I find that a really fascinating one because I do find it does feel like, and maybe it is true. Maybe people people's anxiety definitely seems very high, and people's tendency, like fearfulness and worry, is high. But it's interesting to think of how much that is matched with what what they believe is matched with reality. Like, there's even some romanticism that things were so much better in 1950 or something or 60s. Like things were simpler. 
family had this, life was better. And I think there's just lots of, there's many reasons things are much, much better now, but people this don't. This podcast used to be better in the past. I mean, that is subjective. <laughs> um, I don't agree. I've listened to our first episode again, and I think this is this is more polished, arguably. Good uh, Lord. Yeah, there you go. Um, no, I think we're I think we're on the up and up, mate. Don't worry about it. Um, Take that, right. Pinker. Yeah, <laughs> Pinker slam. All right, do you want to call it there? Yeah, I think we should. But I, I like the idea of going into greater depth on on that topic. But um, yeah, in, interesting stuff for the biases. I think the best I can really say to people is, uh, at least from my point of view, go and read the experts because I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm clutching at the details a little bit, but go and read Thinking Fast and Slow and Nudge and Super Forecasting. They're, they're, th- they're the three I've entertained, really, and they, they are a lot more informative than my babblings would have you believe. Yeah, they, they are the sort of three bangers. And, uh, and yeah, we're, we're very much skimming the surface as to, uh, to you know, laymen. Um, but even, be, even being aware that they're at play, right? Like not knowing the actual nuances of how they work in a psychological sense but just going oh wow i might actually be susceptible to some things that i hadn't thought about previously is a massive like leveling up to how you would be without that knowledge yes and actually (laughs) i realized last episode we actually talked about a lot of these in different ones we we last episode we talked about quitting is the sunk cost fallacy which is we the, did regurgitating old material once again there you go less um, than a week apart yeah yeah the the idea that just because you've you've put some time and effort into something that um you should keep pursuing it that's a bias and uh we talked about why quitting quitting could be a good way to combat that bias um well let's quit this right now let's nip this right. one in the budget let's uh call it there um all right listeners we'll see you very soon and uh let us know if you read any of those books give us some some of your hot takes and we will be back very soon thanks very much bye-bye Ta-ta.